Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. This is the first episode in a two-part series on biographies and databases of Atlantic slaves recorded at the Atlantic Slave Biographies Database Conference at Michigan State University in November of 2013. Our guest today is Paul Lovejoy, Canada Research Chair in African Diaspora History at York University. Professor Lovejoy has published over 30 books on African history and African diaspora history, including the canonical Transformations in Slavery, A History of Slavery in Africa, published by the Cambridge University Press and now in its third edition as of 2011. He's also written and published more than 100 articles and chapters in books. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, director of the Harriet Tubman Institute for Research on the Global Migrations of African Peoples, and editor of the Harriet Tubman series on the African Diaspora for Africa World Press. Uh, Professor Lovejoy, Paul, could you just, uh, for the listeners' sake, uh, uh, explain how you came to the study of African history of, of slavery in Africa? Well, I was uh, at graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, and I wanted to do something different. I wanted to um, understand uh, much better the place of the United States in, in world history. That was my original interest in looking beyond the United States. And I was fortunate to be at Wisconsin because Philip Curtin and Jan Van Sina were both there. And I settled on African history and studied with both of those um, fantastic scholars and have never looked back. It's been just simply a wonderful career. And the idea of, of working on a, a topic that relates to issues of social justice, uh, that relate to um, uh, the neglected history of people of African descent, uh, this, uh, this, was, this became my calling uh, to some extent. Uh, reflects my family history because uh, one of my ancestors was uh, quite f important um, abolitionist in the United States by the name of Elijah Parrish Lovejoy, somebody who Obama talks about now and then because he was from Illinois. And, and so in my own family I had a tradition which uh, encouraged me to, um, to, to look much uh, further be than beyond uh, my immediate communities where there was no discussion of everything, anything to do with people of African descent uh, in the 1950s when I was going through secondary school, for example. And even later when the civil rights movement became prominent, uh, it became very clear that uh, very few people knew anything about the history of Africa. So th these were all motivating factors. and. I was, as I said, I was fortunate. I was at Wisconsin at a time when two extremely distinguished uh, historians were, were there and were teaching. I was glad to be in their group. And uh, one of the many areas that you've mastered has been that of uh, African biographies. I mean, your, your work is really legion, some really seminal works on cholera, on salt. Um, Transformations in Slavery, I think, is in its third edition. Uh, so many students of African history have devoured that and drawn inspiration from it, I'm sure. But one area in particular that you've um, been very productive in is, is African biographies. Um, 
um, and, and you, you've looked at Wasser, uh, you've looked at uh, other important figures that sort of bridge the Atlantic world. Um, could you speak to um, how you envisage the writing of African biographies, particularly with regard to the sorts of people you've written about? Well, I became interested in biography, again, by chance originally, because when I was doing my Ph.D. thesis, I actually started uh, working on biographies of merchants in Nigeria who were involved in the, the cola trade, the salt trade that you mentioned. Uh, and a lot of my documentation was based on interviews that I had done with um, um, old people in Nigeria uh, who whose family histories were crucial to what my studies were all about. And it just happened uh, in the context of doing this research that uh, many of these merchants were in fact descended from slaves, um, uh, slaves that had been owned locally in Nigeria rather <clears throat> than bought from somewhere else. And so without even intending to do so, I was in effect doing biographies of people of slave descent. Uh, way back in 1969, and I went from there to not work particularly on biography, but uh, I came back to it um, really in the 1980s and um, and thereafter, and started working on people like Mohammed Gardo Bakwakwa, um, who wrote his autobiography in Canada, but had come from West Africa and been taken as a slave to Brazil and then ended up in New York City and a very interesting complicated life and I then went on and did a series of other biographical studies including a man from what's now Guinea named Mohammed Kaba Saganugu who went to Jamaica in 1777 where he lived until his death in 1845 and so I did a lot of work on him and his career. He was a Muslim, and he wrote um, uh, two Arabic texts in Jamaica around 1820. Um, and then I've gone on from there to do a lot more biographies because the biographies in West Africa uh, mount, uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of them, many of them book-length, like Bakwakwa, like uh, Equiano, who I prefer to call Gustavus Vasa because that's what he called himself. Uh, although scholarship knows him as, uh, and students today know him as Wallada Equiano, uh, which was his African birth name, but not the name that he actually chose to call himself or that he was known by in his own time. And now, um, as the paper that I'm presenting here at this conference uh, uh, with, with Sean Kelly, who I'm collaborating with, uh, we're constructing a another type of uh, biography database than the one that exists here at MSU. Uh, the one that we're doing is focusing only on people who were born in Africa. and <clears throat> So that means that we look at a lot of people who don't necessarily end up in the Americas or across the Atlantic. And uh, although the popular conception is that most biographies and autobiographies of people of slave descent were written in North America, uh, we can actually show that this is simply not true. There were many, many written in North America, but there were also many that were written in Africa, and they were written in Brazil, and they were written all over the place. And beyond that, we're even able to find out enough information about individuals uh, from court records, from emancipation papers, from a whole series of documentation 
enough information so we can actually construct uh, um, biographical accounts of, of uh, individuals. And for us, and for me in particular, it's important that we do this because slavery is often seen as something that results in people's social death. It's something where people in their past is denied and, and uh, ignored, where individuals are renamed so that they lose all connection with their past. And there's a, that aspect of slavery that we, we fully know and fully understand. But, but what's not understood is that despite this, this, this attempt uh, to silence people and to silence information about the past, uh, we do know a lot about individuals in slavery and how they got out of slavery and what they suffered uh, during slavery. And, and so it seems to me that we want to make those stories more accessible, which is completely in keeping with the, with the intentions of um, Walter Hawthorne, Gwendolyn Hall, and Paula Chance, and, and the whole group here at, at MSU who were trying to, to construct a... Uh, a database and to integrate different databases. Well, I guess ours is going to be one of the databases that's going to have to be integrated because we're asking slightly different questions. And on that very issue, I've been fascinated in this opening session of the conference, this dynamic between the quantitative approach to the study of transatlantic uh, slavery and the slave trade in particular, and the qualitative one. Uh, there are lots of technological hurdles that we heard the presenters describe today in sort of, uh, for example, the case of ethnonyms that are recorded in the sources. Uh, very, very interesting linguistic challenges there, and, and the historian's uh, uh, expertise and imagination is, is absolutely crucial in decoding those. But um, looking at David Eltis's and, and David Richardson's work, you know, they make a very strong case uh, for the importance of the quantitative method. And I think everyone who studies the topic uh, uh, absolutely um, admires that kind of uh, research. How do you see the relationship between uh, biographies and these more quantitative databases uh, developing uh, now and in the near future? And, and what do you think uh, the contribution to the larger studies uh, is going to be? Well, that's a... The, the, the issue of quantitative versus qualitative is an issue that is um, uh, not just peculiar to historians, but it's across all areas of history, actually. Uh, the attempts to try to, f to figure out uh, uh, using large data sets and percentages of this and that and the other thing, which are extremely important for us to do, of course. But at the same time, there's no, uh, there's no substitute for understanding the, uh, the, the details of an individual's life. Uh, who uh, was subjected to the phenomenon that we're interested in, which is slavery. So that I think both approaches are absolutely indispensable. Uh, one is a census-oriented, um, global, uh, we want to know what the patterns are, how many men, how many women, how many children, and so on, a life expectancy, those types of issues. But uh, we also need to know about individuals. Uh, we also need to know uh, because individuals never conform to the pattern. They're always unique. They always have exceptions about something in their life. And those, those details are also very, very crucial. Uh, we, can't, we can't just see slavery as a, 
uh, as an unknowable evil that was a crime against humanity, um, that uh, really subjected uh, millions of people to uh, very, very unjust forms of uh, not only labor but human relationships in general. And we have to understand that the modern world is based on slavery. We would not be where we are today without the slavery that happened. And slavery is uh, an embarrassment. Uh, slavery is uh, undignified. Mm -hmm. Slavery is something everyone wants to forget, uh, especially people whose uh, ancestors uh, at one time or another were either enslaved or were the ones who were actually doing the enslaving. And in both sides, nobody wants to remember that inglorious past. On the other hand, uh, like other things that have happened in history, if we just ignore it and forget it, then we're doomed to continue to live in a racist society that will continue to reinvent how racism acti is activated, uh, precisely because it's all based on that slavery um, embarrassment. And the, the, the question becomes, is when, when do students, when do children learn about slavery, how and where? And who are they when they learn? Because if it's, if it's one black kid in, an, in a classroom with 35 white kids, and then one day out of nowhere the subject of slavery has come down, you'll find out that that one black kid isn't going to say anything. And you're going to find out that there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of other things that are going on in the classroom that don't need to be there. But because of the silence around the issue of slavery, um, then we don't want to confront the issues of it. And the issues related to it is racism. Uh, that lingers through the world, and it's an astonishment that we still have uh, strong racism everywhere. Why is it astonishing? Because we know that most or a very large percentage of all popular modern culture is African-derived. And so we don't have any problem with that, jazz, blues, rap, uh, theater, painting, on and on and on and on. We don't have any problem with saying, look at all the African influence here. Okay, we have all that African influence here, so why do we still have racism? You know, on the one hand, we say, look, we get all this from Africa. On the other hand, uh, ah, because of the slavery issue, we don't want to talk about it. And so somehow we have to deal with that contradiction. How much we owe to the African past on the one hand, and how much we, don't, we want to stigmatize that past on the other. And we've got to get beyond that uh, in every country. And there's not one country in the Americas, from Canada to Argentina, in which slavery was not really, really significant, was not important to the development of the country, uh, was not crucial to the development of society, uh, and, uh, and nobody escapes from this. Nobody. Uh, and that's the part that we have to convince everybody, is that we all need to know this. We need to know what happened in the past so we can go on and have a much better future. Students that I've worked with have uh, found your various websites particularly useful. There's the Harriet Tubman Center, Shard. Could you uh, elaborate a little bit about the origins and the development and perhaps the future of these wonderful sites, um, their content, uh, how, how, or the inspiration of how they came about and where they might be going? 
Well, dissemination of information via the web, of course, is crucial. And this, we've known this for a long time. And uh, I've, the websites that you refer to are related to our efforts to, um, to disseminate knowledge, disseminate inf information. The Harriet Tubman website is related to the, uh, the research center at York University that uh, I, I helped found as the founding director. Uh, and we're interested in research on all aspects of the global migrations of African peoples, however that occurred and whenever it occurred. Uh, so that website is a general website, and within it are a whole bunch of web pages that have different uh, projects and outcomes of projects on the Underground Railroad, for example, on the the war of Af the, the 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 role of um, of Africans or people of African descent in. The War of 1812, for example, which, being Canadian, the War of 1812 for us uh, was a defining moment in the history of Canada. If the United States had, in fact, uh, won that war, Canada would be part of the United States, and they didn't. And but what's not known is that someone by the name of Richard Pierpoint, who was a Muslim from Futabondu in what's now Senegal, uh, formed an all-black battalion uh, for the British. Uh, and uh, that was an instrumental in the Battle of Queenston Heights, which was the crucial battle of the, of the war, uh, which the Americans lost, uh, and the Canadians won. I'm not saying that Richard Pierpoint, a Muslim, and his group are responsible for the victory. I'm just saying they were on the winning side, and maybe they wouldn't have won if they hadn't have been there. Uh, so we need to know these details. Uh, Richard Pierpoint actually had... Uh, escaped from slavery in the United States uh, and fled to the British lines because when he fled to the British side uh, he gained his freedom uh, and so that's what he did. Uh, he became a Canadian and uh, the, last, uh, uh, the last documentation we have is he was trying he petitioned the British government in 1822 to return to his native country of Futabandu which as I said is in modern Senegal and which was an important Muslim state, state in West Africa. And the fact that Canadians need to learn that a Muslim, and an African Muslim, was, had played a crucial role in the defining moment of Canadian history, I think has a lot to do not only with Africa, but about our knowledge about Islam, too, actually. So we need to know about that, too, just as much as we need to know about uh, Africa. And, uh, Shad, could you just explain the, the origins there? Yeah. Uh, the, the website Shad uh, is named after Marianne Shad, who was an abolitionist, uh, the first, actually, the first woman to edit a newspaper in North America. She edited a newspaper called The Voice of the Fugitive, which was published in Canada uh, in, the, in the 1850s. And uh, we didn't, I didn't want people to, I want people to know who Marianne Shad is. So we named the website after her, we call it Shad. But SHAD is also an acronym. It stands for Studies of the History, Studies in the History of the African Diaspora Documents. And if you go online uh, and you look at SHAD, you will see that it is documents. It's primary source materials with virtually no annotation, shortest introductions possible. Uh, the reason being is that we wanted to put online in an accessible format um, original documentations and transcriptions of those documentations 
so that people could as students could just generally look at materials and so the types of things that are on there there are a number of arabic documents for example that were written by african muslims in diaspora in brazil in jamaica and elsewhere we put those arabic documents up plus translations of them one of the reasons we did it is because I was asked again and again, again what about Muslims in the Americas? Muslims this, Muslims, they don't know. And all these people that were asking me all these questions clearly didn't know anything about Islam and didn't know anything about the fact that there were Muslims in the Americas. And, and there were all these, a lot of people like to think that, you know, Africans, they came from Africa and then they compromised their beliefs, their religions, and they, they formed something new that was syncretic. Not Muslims. Muslims don't do that. Muslims remain true to their religion. Uh, we have an example of it again and again and again and again, and we do in the past, too. When Muslims were taken as slaves to the United States, to Brazil, to Jamaica, places like this. And I was tired of answering uh, questions from people saying, well, how do you know a Muslim? What, you know, of course, they always compromise their religion. And they were saying all sorts of things which I found to be complete nonsense. And I said, so I started putting up Arabic documents that were written by slaves in diaspora, which show that they weren't compromising anything. They were keeping their Muslim names. They were um, they were praying. If they couldn't pray five times a day, they'd pray three. Uh, they would they would they would practice fasting during the month of Ramadan, but tell their masters that they were sick and couldn't eat. Uh, they would um, not eat pork, and they wouldn't drink, uh, even if the, the only food that was being given was pork. They wouldn't eat it. And we have so many cases of this, so we know that these people were Muslims, and they were practicing a religion. And, in fact, um, people don't know anything about Islam, don't know one really very simple test. You can always tell who a Muslim is. It's very easy. You just ask the person to pray. If the person can't pray then they're not a Muslim. And they have to pray in Arabic. They cannot pray in any other language. So if you ask somebody you're a Muslim, then you pray. If you can pray in Arabic, then you're a Muslim. That's good enough. <laughs> That's good enough. If you can't pray in, in, in Arabic, then you're not. That's it. A simple test. <laughs> but most people don't realize that it's, it's uh, the identification is that simple. But being a Muslim and living a Muslim is a very, a very... Um, um, controlled, disciplined life. Uh, you pray five times a day. Um, you only believe in one God. Um, you um, practice um, uh, almsgiving. You give uh, to the poor. Uh, you, uh, and you, you go on pilgrimage to Mecca if you can afford it. But you have some very basic tenets. It's very easy to... Anybody who knows those things and can pray in Arabic, they're a Muslim. No question. So... That was one of the things we put on this Shad website. We also put tons of documents on um, on uh, the area of the Upper Guinea Coast from Senegal down to Sierra Leone, uh, transcriptions of, uh, of primary source materials that were in French or English. Uh, so it, it's really possible for undergraduates and for graduate students, and indeed anybody, uh, to, to use the Shad website as a source for uh, documents that um, will not necessarily, or in fact, in most cases, will not be available at whatever university or college uh, the students are at. 
And some of these uh, interesting nuances come out in the biography of Bakwakwa, who, of course, comes from a Muslim trading family uh, in Jugu, if I remember correctly, what is today, Benin, right between Sokoto and, and Asante. And he eventually ends up in Brazil and is converted to Christianity. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly vivid way of bringing these larger trends to life through the experiences of one person. Uh, perhaps to, to start bringing it to a close, um, the conference here at Michigan State uh, is international. There are scholars from the Gambia, Nigeria, Cuba, uh, Brazil, as well as North America and, and probably Europe. Uh, it suggests that slavery and, and studies of the slave trade are a hugely um, influential part of the internationalization of African history and African studies. Um, what do you think are the, the strengths that internationalizing, globalizing Africa has for the discipline as a whole, and, and maybe some of the weaknesses, too? Oh, I think it's been uh, the slavery issue has, has really caught on in the uh, in the last 20 years in particular, uh, to have imagined that so much would be written about it or so much uh, research had been done uh, was just unimaginable. When I started at Wisconsin, uh, there was strong interest in slavery, but uh, our interest was more interested in much more narrowly defined African history, political history, and so on and so on. Um, but the study of slavery... Uh, which has boomed. Uh, there's no and the numbers of. I can remember back in 1970, 1971. Uh, maybe there might be a, a panel at a conference uh, where there would be something on slavery. Now there's a, there are three, four, five slavery conferences every month somewhere. Uh, there are so many African studies programs, so many African American studies everywhere, not just here, Costa Rica. Um, uh, there's just been a new chair established, it's a, a, a chair in African and Caribbean studies. Uh, it's the first chair in Latin America that focuses on, on African studies. Now, there's, there's interest in every country, in Colombia, uh, where a quarter of the population of people of African descent. Of course, in Brazil, where it's the law, uh, the, the law is, is that African history has to be taught at every every level of, um, of education, from primary school right through university. And, uh, and of course, the number of universities in, in Africa today is just simply enormous. So to think that there isn't a lot of work going on, well, there's a lot of work going on in the 80 universities in Nigeria, for example. Um, maybe some of that work is no good, but a lot of that work is really good. And so it's blossomed in a way, the, the interest in the subject, in a way that I never, ever uh, imagined was possible. And that's, that's also meant that uh, we've learned a lot, learned a heck of a lot. I would say 30 years ago we would have said the, the amount of information that's available to study Africa or slavery is very limited. We now know that's not true. There is so much documentation, there is so much material in so many different languages that the problem is the opposite of not enough. The, op the problem is there's so much information and in how to digest it. Uh, we're, we're doing a good job of it, I think, but uh, this conference is, is a perfect example. We're, we're dealing with metadata, megadata. We're dealing with lots of data, with big chunks of data. 
uh, and we're, we're manipulating that, those data in ways that was unimaginable before the computer. And uh, uh, it's exciting for those reasons. Uh, we're not the only area of history that's experimenting in this way, but we certainly have, and we certainly are. And it's paid off in uh, important ways. Uh, I think the, the shift, uh, without that shift and the greater tolerance that goes with it of understanding more about Africa, Obama never would have been elected president. Uh, in this, and you could say the same in many other countries, the types of changes that have happened. Uh, all that's very positive. All that's very good. And, I, I, and I, we just want to make sure that it continues because the difficulty with the slavery issue in the past is this curtain of silence. We don't want to know anything that's shameful. And we don't want to, so we sweep it under the carpet. And so then we retreat into that. Uh, the silence again, and then the next generation has to rediscover what the previous one already knew. Uh, and we want to stop that cycle. We want this to become uh, commonplace, that everybody knows this, understands it, so that when the subject is brought up in school, we don't have black kids who are embarrassed and white kids are going, dee, 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 you know, and that kind of stuff. We have a much, a much better uh, opportunity to get things right with the, with the kids that are coming along. Paul Lovejoy, thanks so much for talking to Africa, past and present. Africa, past and present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.